Good morning, happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect as usual. I had a great day yesterday, had a bunch of calls from people I haven't gotten to talk to in a really long time, <coughs> including uh, Christian Wonders, who is a pitching coach with the uh, San Diego Padres. We had a great time, me and, and he and Mike Camp Camparini, all on the same call, breaking down pitching, pitching motions, seeing some really, really amazing, amazing things um, in regards to throwing mechanics and just applying the model. So I had a great time there. Just had to let that out a little bit because I had so, so much fun. But let's dive into some Q&A for Monday. Um, got a couple of really, really useful questions, I think. Um, the first one comes from Jake, and Jake wants to know about breathing in a resting state. And he said, I would be hugely grateful if you could upload a video explaining how, how to breathe in a resting state outside of performing resets. And the thing that, it, that I would offer you, Jake, is that, that normal breathing should just be basic, quiet, nasal breathing under most circumstances. So I don't try to make people breathe any particular way other than during some form of, of rehabilitative situation, homework or training-based type breathing where we're working on sequence and, and strategy and such. Breathing behaviors are learned behaviors. And, and so what we wanna do is we, we have to do enough work to make the changes that are desired, but to become obsessive about trying to be um, breathing in a very specific way all the time is much like trying to capture whatever good posture may be because there is it's ill-defined. What we're actually trying to do, Jake, is we're trying to restore the adaptability. So I should be able to breathe in many different ways under many different circumstances. And in most cases, people are arrested in one direction or the other. So if we look at, at the representations of, of the, the two archetypes in the axial skeleton, so if I'm biased towards an exhalation strategy with a compensatory inhalation, or I'm biased towards an inhalation strategy with a compensatory exhalation, I'm just biased at one end of this breathing spectrum. If I can capture the opposing strategy, then I typically have everything that falls in between. And, and so that's ultimately the goal. And so we need to do enough work on a regular basis where, where we restore that capability of the full excursion of breathing. Beyond that, maybe an occasional reinforcement periodically, especially if you're one of those people that has to assume a static position all day. So if I'm a desk, desk worker, or if I have to stand in a certain position, then my movement is limited throughout the day, or if I've superimposed compensatory strategies on there from a performance standpoint and I'm trying to maintain some element of health, then maybe I need to reinforce it periodically. But in general, Jake, what you wanna do is you wanna do enough work that you get the outcome that you desire. And, and so again, there's we, we're in the gray with this answer. It's not an absolute thing, but typically, typically, um, when you're at rest, it's just normal, quiet nasal breathing. You should be able to, to, to access that without the compensatory strategies. If you have to, then that might be an answer as to why maybe you're having a performance-related issue or, or um, dealing with some sort of movement limitation. So hopefully that answers that question for you, Jake. My next question comes from Jason. And so Jason asked, asked a, a question about, about some, some groin-related pain and he's talking about specifically about, about groin-related pain in clients and athletes. And, and, he's, and he asks, um, would I be correct in thinking that we would need to eccentrically orient the adductors 
by closing the pelvic outlet to increase the available range of motion. And on the contrary, would I need to concentrically orient the adductors by widening the pelvic outlet? Otherwise, is addressing this issue largely based on giving the client access to whatever range of motion or orientation they have lost? Generally, I think you've just answered your own question there, there Jason, but, but let's go through this a little bit so we have some, some, some more clarity because it's not as simple as, as the way you've expressed it. And, 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 I, and I think that if we can expand your viewpoint of your model, then, then I think it will be helpful. So if we're looking at just the, the inlet and outlet as, as you described, so as I, as I widen the outlet, there are certain elements that will become concentrically oriented in, in this groin area, which is incredibly busy to begin with. And then if I, if I close the, the, the outlet, so if I narrow the outlet, so a narrow IPA, um, I will have certain elements that will eccentrically orient and concentrically orient. So, so let's just pick on the adductor magnus because it's easy, um, because it it's probably more than than even two muscles. Um, so it has a lot of different behaviors depending on what activities you're performing. But we can break it down into an ER element and an IR element. So if I was to to narrow the IPA, which would be the the closing the the pelvic outlet, if you will, I will get. Uh, an element of the adductor magnus that will eccentrically orient. So the internal rotation uh, component, as it's typically described, would become eccentrically oriented. And that's going to allow a great deal of, of hip abduction, which is actually hip external rotation, will allow that to occur because the, the external rotation element of that same muscle, uh, again, it's a different muscle if you ask me, it was just poorly named. Remember, humans are terrible at naming things. And so I have a concentric orientation of that aspect, which would reinforce my ability to abduct an ER. And so I think in general, um, Jason, your, your, like I said, your, your final statement is correct. What we need to do is we need to look at this from the perspective of, hey, uh, we can call a diagnosis anything that you want. We can say that there's pain in this area and never knowing why it would be painful per se. Maybe there's a structural issue that we can sort of narrow things down to where we have some, some sort of finding on a, on a on a radiograph or MRI or something like that, 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 that leads us in a direction and maybe we can blame some things on that. But in general, if, if we don't have any structural abnormalities and people do have pain, we'll just never know why they have pain in the first place. So then the goal is, is to restore this full movement capability. So can I orient the pelvis? Can I restore the relative motion to the pelvis, which is this full excursion of breathing? And so then I get normal eccentric orientation and concentric orientation of the, the surrounding musculature in the hip and the groin area. So, so again, I, I think that your model might be just a little oversimplified, but you've got the right, the right concept in mind. And so again, it's just a matter of restoring this full excursion of breathing, restoring the relative motion between the body segments, and that ultimately is the best shot you have at restoring health, comfort, and, and normal movement capabilities. So Jason, I, like I said, I think you're on it. Um, that's it for today. Have a great day, everybody. Um, I'm gonna finish my neuro coffee. It's time for a workout, and then we got other stuff to do today. So let's go get busy. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have my neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. Thank you to Dr. Mike. Had a very busy Tuesday back in clinic. Some element of, of normal behaviors, which is kind of fun to get back to. So I'm looking forward to that. But since we're busy, we gotta dive right into the Q and A. I got a couple questions that came through that, that I, uh, 
I am, I'm thrilled to see because they're kind of similar but different. And they talk about orientations and, and such and then how we can influence these things and, and why we're getting good outcomes or bad outcomes. Uh, so, so this is kind of cool. Uh, first one comes from John and John says, I hope things are going well for you up there in Indianapolis. Thank you, John. He says, it's a rare issue uh, that I see, but if you could cover what to do for a left tensor fascia lata that will not reduce tone, resist comfortable loading patterns and drives anterior hip pain, which he describes as burning. Um, I've had three patients in the year with this issue and all the hip extension and guided adduction program that I'm using doesn't seem to connect. Okay, John, so you've got an orientation problem here that you might not be able to identify or it's, there's a little confounding factor in there that, that might make this a little bit confusing. So let's go through what the possibilities are and, and maybe some of this stuff will, will jibe with you and you'll, you'll get your aha moment and then we'll, we'll have a solution for you, okay? Since I don't have all the, the chessboard, I, I don't have all the information, I gotta make a couple educated guesses here. So let's just talk about, about dead guy anatomy for a second. So, so the tensor fascia is kind of here-ish. It's on the front side, it's anterior to the trochanter. And so uh, again, in dead guy anatomy, they say it's a flexor abductor internal rotator. So right away we have a little bit of confusion because you have two opposing uh, activities here that this, the muscle is going to produce. So if it's an internal rotator and an abductor, that means it internally rotates and it externally rotates, which means that, that the orientation of the pelvis is going to come into play here in, in, in probably a pretty major way. So think about an inhaled position of the pelvis right off the bat. So if I ER that ilium, I immediately pick up some concentric orientation. I'm bringing the two ends of the muscle close together so it can concentrically orient. But now I gotta start playing with, with other, other angles. And I gotta start looking at, at where this pelvis is positioned in space. So if I'm more forward, if I'm more anteriorly oriented, that tensor fascia lat, because it does have concentric orientation, is gonna pick up that, that IR position, so I'm gonna lose external rotation. So right away, if my ER measures are reduced, then I know I've got more anterior orientation to play with, and then that's gonna influence my decision-making as far as my interventions are concerned. If I'm just tilted more, more what you would consider laterally or abducted as, or as that relative position, I get a tremendous amount of concentric orientation again of tensor fascia lata, but this time I pick up ER, lose IR. And, and so under those circumstances, I have to look at the position of my, of my ischial tuberosity here because as it approximates to the femur, right, I'm already in what you would consider a hip extended position. And then I'm gonna pick up more concentric orientation posteriorly. So not only do I have tensor fascia lat in a concentric orientation, but I can pick up concentric orientation posteriorly here, and that shoves me forward and, and, and uh, anterior on the left. So what happens is I get a sacrum that is now right facing. So if you're trying to, to extend the hip, as you said, then I'm already in a relatively hip extended position. So that can't be the solution. But what I do have on the other side, because I've got the sacrum oriented to the, to the right, I have an expansive strategy on the right side. So what I would be doing is I would be probably trying to drive a concentric orientation here on this side to get that sacrum to reorient. And then I can actually recapture the exhaled position of this ilium and chances are your problem is solved. So again, you, you gotta play with, with the, the orientation of the pelvis uh, when you're dealing with a lot of this concentric uh, orientation, especially of, of some muscles that, that 
again, behave differently based on the orientation of, of the ilium and based on the orientation of the hip. So, so John, I hope that helps you a little bit as far as coming up with a strategy. Um, Marcos had a question about one of the videos that I posted on Instagram, which was a, an armbar video to restore hip external rotation. I think I made reference to the left hip under these circumstances. Um, and it is somewhat similar in regard to, to what we just talked about with, with some of the orientation issues. And so uh, Marcus says, uh, in the kettlebell arm bar video, you advised externally rotating the shoulder on the inhale, internally rotating the shoulder on the exhale. This makes sense because those shoulder positions align with the breathing cycle. Um, could you discuss why we want to sequence the, the breathing pattern this way instead of staying at an end range shoulder internal external rotation and, and breathing while in a static hold? Well. First and foremost, Marco, great question. Um, and you are correct that you actually could use a static hold um, under those circumstances, especially for people that have difficulty capturing a position in the first place. I'll use static activities all the time. Although I wanna to try to get to the dynamics as quickly as possible because when we can reestablish the the, the fluid flows, the, so, the, so the gradients of high pressure to low pressure, high volume to low volume, that's actually what restores range of motion um, much more effectively. But we're also playing with, with some, some iteration in that, in that exercise. So uh, we were dealing with a, a loss of hip ER. And so just like we were talking with John's question, I had an anterior orientation and I had most likely a compressive strategy on the left posterior side, which is going to turn the sacrum. So that means I got a spine that's actually facing the right. And so when we're in the, the supine arm bar position, like we were in the video, you'll remember the cues of staying left side heavy throughout. And so what we're actually doing is we're using an iteration that's within the axial skeleton. So I'm using the shoulder girdle as an iteration of, of the pelvis to start to turn the spine from its right orientation to its left orientation. And so with every breathing cycle, what we're doing is we're slowly turning the spine from its right orientation to the left. So as I, as I externally rotate and I breathe in, I turn the spine. As I internally rotate and breathe out, I hold that position and create a yielding strategy on the left side because I'm staying left side heavy throughout that exercise. So basically we get this inching around to the left orientation of the spine. We recapture that and then that allows us to recapture the hip position that's going to help restore that external rotation. So we actually bring the pelvis back and then turn it back to the left, which gives us back our external rotation. So hopefully that also answers your question, uh, Marcos. I appreciate you guys so much for, for keeping the questions coming and have a happy Tuesday. I'm gonna finish my coffee, grab a quick workout, and then it's off to the clinic. I'll see you guys later. Good morning, happy Wednesday. This is a little weird for me because I'm actually recording this about two hours ahead of when I normally record because I got that kind of day. Um, got a lot of calls today, got clinic time, etc., etc. So I got to kind of cut to the chase. I'm going to do a, a question from, from Rachel. I'm actually only, only, only going to do part of her question um, because it was a really long question, had a lot of, a lot of parts to it. But, but basically uh, what Rachel's asking is, I'm having a hard time con conceptualizing anterior posterior compression if an individual shows a posterior compression to anterior, so, so pushing from the back, um, they will lose external rotation. Uh, 
uh, in the extremities. She says, in my mind, if someone's compressing posteriorly, wouldn't the muscles be concentrically right and wouldn't this lead to gains in external rotation? Okay, so this gives me an opportunity to talk about something. So what we're using is a representative model of, of movement in the things that I like to talk about. And it depends on, on what model you're using as to what your interpretation of what's happening would be. And so the more detailed the model, obviously the more options that we have. And, and with the one thing we always have to understand is that the model is not reality. And so if your model is less refined or if you're using a different model, then your interpretations will be different. And so let me grab the pebbles real quick. So if we use dead guy anatomy, which is what a lot of, uh, unfortunately, I think, uh, a lot of the information is based on, uh, we, we have this perception somehow that this sucker doesn't bend, twist, move the way, the way it actually does. And then we have this, this thought process that, that this hip joint is somehow fixed in space when the reality is it moves a great deal, it reorients, it changes direction. And so if I use dead guy anatomy and I say that um, I'm doing a, a cadaver dissection, I say these muscles are external rotators because when I pull on them, the hip does this. And so Rachel, in your model, you are absolutely correct. This, that, that's what would happen. But I don't think that's as close to reality as we can get. So I think we can have a little bit more of a refined model. So if we think about a posterior compression, so a posterior compression would, would, would be activity of the muscles that go across this upper portion of the posterior aspect of the pelvis that push forward. And what that actually does is it changes the direction of the acetabulum. So the socket actually changes its direction. And so if I change the direction, so if I compress here and I change the direction of the, of the acetabulum, what happens is, is I pick up internal rotation and I lose external rotation. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about these compressive strategies. So every compressive strategy either reorients or changes shape or has some other influence that produces an outcome. And the more understanding we have in respect of how this thing actually can move, so we have to refine our model. We can't use the dead guy anatomy as our representation like most books try to do. And then they try to resolve these things. And now we have this massively confusing model with multiple rules and, and no foundational principles. If we take the same concept up into the thorax, okay, uh, where I have the traditionally upward rotation of the scapula. That is a posterior compressive strategy in the thorax. That reorients the glenoid and it produces an internal rotation element. So through that middle range of, of overhead reach, that's why that would become an internally rotated position um, that we would use as, as we talk about moving through, through inhalation to exhalation to in, inhalation. Again, we're talking about that posterior element so I, I appreciate this, this question so much because I know there's a massive amount of confusion as, as to why these things exist. What it comes down to is evolving your model, adding detail, layers of detail. You, it doesn't matter where you start. You're not right and you're not wrong. All models have limitations and that's the one thing that we need to understand. It's just how much detail can we superimpose onto what we already know. So, so Rachel, take what you're already thinking because you're not wrong under certain circumstances. 
but now you need to add to this model and say, okay, if I compress this, now what happens with an understanding a little bit more about what the options actually are um, within a little bit more of a realistic model. We're never gonna see reality. We always have to use a model because this is a really, really complex concept and when we talk about, about movement. And so hopefully that answers a little bit of your question. I, I apologize I had to rush today, but I got a lot of stuff going on this morning. You guys have a great Wednesday. It is the gorgeous one's birthday today. And one of the best things ever, she forgot it was her birthday today. So I love that. And, and that's one of the reasons why I married her. So you guys have a great Wednesday and I'll see you. Oh, coaches and coffee uh, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. I'll see you guys then. It is Thursday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and Dr. Mike, it is perfect as usual. 57, 57 grams per pot makes perfect coffee every time. I cut my own hair. You cut your own hair? Oh yeah, oh yeah. The front was all right, but uh, the backside, it was pretty ugly. I I, I got a, it was, it was pretty rough. It, that, it was a that's mess. That's what hoodies are for, my friend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of innovation, a little bit of creativity goes a long way. Bill, how are you doing physical therapy? Well, I guess you're in your office, so you can do it. You're not doing it virtually. Um, I, well, I'm, I'm doing both. Like, how do you do it without touching people? So like, I don't touch that... people all that much anyway. You know, it, so, so when we look at a hierarchy of, of treatment, like, like hands-on stuff is, is rarely the first intervention. I won't say it never happens, but it's rarely. Because my goal is to, is in everything that, that I, I perceive as, as the effect is a learning-based effect, right? So, so anything that, that, that the patient can produce themselves is ideal mm -hmm. because then they are learning, right? So they are they are promoting the the their own sensory input. They process it and then they spit out the output, and that's what I measure. It's like, okay, did we get the the effect and change that that we intended based on that intervention? So most of what I do anyway is, is I coach, you know. And so if 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 somebody would need a a another sensory input position can do it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times it's just a little bit of creativity with the position. Um, but, but again, that just goes right back to where we started, which is just, I just coach people into positions. I coach people on, on uh, an activity, just like anything else. So like I said, you know, I, it's, I, I don't say that I probably, I, I do some manual stuff every day, but certainly not mm -hmm. every patient. Um, my father's a tailor, so this isn't super random. We've been making masks uh, for people, and one of the one of the things that we use for the filtration are um, certain vacuum bags. So, like, there's a company called Festool that makes like super fancy sanders, and uh, where you could like sand and there's no dust. Like, the vacuum sucks it up. And they have really nice bags, and so we use those bags as liners for the masks because it filters out like 93% of particles. Has anyone had anybody get injuries over these seven weeks? I haven't had a thing, not a tweak, not like a one report from anybody.
Yeah. Do you think it has to do with um, the amount of like stress? Because I know a lot of my people are not working. Yeah. And they have actually like lost weight and, you know, enjoying life a little bit and able to sleep and be decompressed. That, you know, that's a, that's a really good, that's a really good question. It's like, you know, so there's certain stressors that are associated with this whole thing, right? You know, we, we all get stretched in, in one way or another, but, but you, you've got a great point. It's like people are probably sleeping a lot more than they did before, yep. either intentionally or unintentionally because they have the capacity to now. I mean, <clears throat> think about that as an impact. That, that's brilliant, Nikki. Yeah, to bring that up. Uh, I thought about that, that too. I have a client who is, travels all the time, usually internationally, and has not been doing any travel as a result lately. Is it the, is and, it the person that I would know? Yeah. Okay. And um, so he, like, generally has had some problems. We've run into some, some resistance getting results in certain areas. Right. And I've always said it's the disruption of the circadian rhythms and the stress from travel is such a big issue. We can't. Oh, yeah. He's a time yeah. traveler. Yeah, and so, so he hasn't been doing any travel, but there's actually been some other really stressful things happening in his life currently, but the weight is like gone. And it was so interesting to see how there could be an intense life stressor, but not this physical travel stressor where there's like extreme time zone change on a consistent basis, yeah. like how the body is responding to different kinds of stress and, um, and it's been really interesting. So yeah, Nikki, I think you're right. Like people are experiencing, not that you no know, everybody's living a stress-free life, but they're experiencing different kinds of stress maybe. And, um, and it's interesting for me to see the kinds of stresses that are permissive for weight loss and not permissive for weight loss. I'll be interested to see kind of how this, this whole learning thing goes for the kids as far as, Steve, do you have any input on that? Because I would be curious to see if the kids are actually, you know, adapting to this, this style of education and then maybe flourishing a little bit because of it. Uh, I think it's a mix. I think it has to go a lot with socioeconomics a little bit. Um, we're seeing that within our school district where I think you have a, a group of kids that are starting to get outside. And I think like you guys are all saying, there's a huge health benefit I think that's coming out of this. But I also think it's, it's also very socioeconomic um, where I think on the lower side of things, kids are really having issues adopting because they're taking care of siblings. Um, you know, there's a lot of other environmental factors that are coming into this. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we're seeing the good, but then I also see, I think we're seeing some of the rough stuff as well in our, our school district. Um, so I, I don't know, I, I think, I think a, a lot of kids are thriving. It, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of like this almost 80-20 split we've got going but it's like 25, 30% are fully participating. And then it's like, we're, we're trying to get this other 70, 75% to, to kind of buy in and, and get themselves into a routine. Dr. Mike, how real are, is this uh, carnivore, carnivore diet that's now trending? I'm seeing people post about. Like how real is it? Like are actually like people are actually, actually just like eating doing meat? it, and like what are like the macros <clears throat> like to make you a carnivore? I kind of I did a not a full academic assessment because it's kind of lacking in the academic side of things. Uh, <laughs> like I think it's you know you know I just I think in general it 
I find it silly to exclude food groups for no reason. Right. Right. And so, you know, like when people say like, oh, I, like I don't eat this and you're like, oh, why? And they're like, oh, it's not good for you. And it's like, you know, but like for no given reason, they're just decided it was magically not good for them. So with the carnivore diet to say like, you just eat meat and, you know, so what's the difference between a carnivore diet and a ketogenic diet? So if we added seven spears of asparagus each day, right? And three mushrooms, like all of a sudden you lose all these magical effects of said carnivore diet. Like so those kind of huge, like chasms of logic when those are missing, uh, I find it really difficult to, uh, to have conversations about, you know, should or shouldn't you do that? Um, they're just, they're seeing, there's no good, there's no good biological mechanism really behind it. You know, I think really, if we look at current, the closest thing you'd liken to would be a ketogenic diet. And if you look at the data behind ketogenic diet, which from a sports performance perspective is really lacking. I actually did a webinar yesterday on it. So, I've, and I did a review last fall on it as well, like an academic review. And it just, there isn't a lot of good data on sports performance and ketogenic diets. And so at best, it's just as good as a regular dietary approach, uh, potentially better at endurance, but likely insufficient at high intensities, right? Even after keto adaptation. So if you kind of apply all those same things to the carnivore diet, I mean, you know, that's kind of what you're left with. Um, I think there are a lot easier dietary patterns for people to follow. Um, I mean, I love ribeyes. So it's like, I think that, you know, but um, I also think that when you start excluding whole food groups, you know, the, your personal biology and physiology doesn't change because you've decided to eat or not to eat certain things. So this is a conversation I always have with people if they follow a vegetarian diet. I'm like, that's fine. But like the biology of your protein metabolism is still the thing. Like your body still needs two to three grams of leucine at every eating occasion to maximize muscle protein synthesis. Just because you're choosing not to eat foods that are high in these essential amino acids doesn't change your body's need for it. And so when you look at these other extreme dietary approaches, you're like, okay, that's fine. But how, what are we doing to account for now all the things that we're not getting um, that we generally would have otherwise that your body needs? And so whether, you know, whatever, whether it's the carnivore diet or vegan diet, if you look at opposite ends of the spectrum, I think you need to consider what are those gaps that you are creating due to your food choices. And then are you fixing them or are you just choosing to, to you know, kind of live in, in kind of nutritional ignorant bliss? So how, Jim, you know, you're saying you're doing a lot more bands and you've gotten more creative with all the home workouts. Yeah. Do you think this is going to change in, you know, like in, in 2022, when you get back in the gym, is that going to change <laughs> like how you go about like the implements that you use or how you go about training and programming? I don't think it changes me from a one-on-one perspective, but I think it changes things maybe from a team perspective in a lot of ways because I was thinking about it yesterday. It's like, just because you have access to certain equipment doesn't mean it's a need or a why, like part of the why, right? Like, yeah. cause people are going to run back into the weight room and be like, I need to get back in the squat rack. Well, it's like, justify it, right? Like justify it for this person. Well, 
that's what I'm wondering is, is yeah, is this going to, you know, you, that maybe you're doing things now and you're like, oh, wait a second, like, we, we should just do this all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's going to be, um, I think the first week back, people are going to be very, going back to their emotional attachments of what they thought worked. Cable cars. But it's like, are, you, are we measuring things right now for when they get back and be like, look, like, here's your vertical jump. Like, you lost nothing. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so I think it's, it's going to be very interesting. The challenge is to become more principle-based in, instead of kind of like what you said. It's like, you know, it's a lot of people do things just because we've always done it that way or because when they came up, their mentor did it this way, and so now they do it this way. Right. When, when the reality is, is we've, we've always been chasing an outcome. Yeah. Right? And, and that's a principle-based approach. It's like, okay, if, as long as I follow the principles, it's, it's not the implement, right? And, and so I was talking with, with, with Eric, one of our, one of our coaches um, this week, and, and, and he has is really looked at this as an opportunity because he's had to go virtual. And, and so one, his coaching cues get better, but, but he's also looking at it from an outcome perspective. And it's just like, it's like, it's really forced me to really look at, at what adaptations that we're driving when we're, when we're in the training hall or if we're over on the turf side doing some form of activity. And he's, and he, and he's like, so, so he's actually expanding his repertoire of activities that produce an equivalent outcome. Yeah, I think it's gotten us to, to really tighten up our progressions. Um, and really kind of have it dialed in where it's like, okay, we're moving through our steps. And if we can not be so fast to try to rush, there, as coming from a strength coach, to rush under the bar. Um, and how much can we glean? How much can we get out of them before we need to add that, that extra stressor? Right. I really liked, um, I'm really liking this period because our clients are between the ages of 45 and 65. And we have some outliners that are 23. We do have like some 75-year-olds. But the group of people that I have taken on, we're getting really back to the basics. Like we're goblet squatting, we're doing lunch, we're doing body weight stuff, we're doing banded rows or whatever we can do. We're not loading them up. And I think they're actually seeing they're more comfortable in a sense that they're not feeling banged up when they leave and or the next day their their recovery is down. And you know, even though their stress levels a little bit less because they're not working as much, but we're able to get back to the basics of what do they actually need. Good morning, happy Friday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, what a fabulous week. So this has been, been a great week, got a lot done. Very, very busy which is actually kind of cool considering the circumstances that we're all dealing with. So I'm feeling pretty good about stuff. Um, we did get delayed here in Indiana uh, a little bit more. So uh, we were planning on, on opening up IFS this, this weekend. Um, we're not going to be able to do that. So we got another couple week delay, but that doesn't mean we can't be productive and can't be successful. So let us rock on. I do have a question that I've been holding for a while. So that would be a great way to kind of go into the weekend um, because it, it's a little bit off the beaten path from what we typically talk about when we're talking about structure and behaviors of movement and such. And um, this, this question comes from, from Carmine. And Carmine says, I uh, appreciate the content you've continued to put out during these times. So thank you, uh, Carmine. 
Uh, I have a question in regards to your model. George Box said all models are wrong, some are useful. Uh, what would you say are the limitations of your model and how do the limitations of your model influence your decision making? So thanks Carmine for this. This is really, really good. And thanks for mentioning George Box because it is now standard operating procedure to mention George Box in every circumstance where we're talking about models because of that quote. So I love that quote. Um, so let's talk about this for a minute. So when we talk about the, the, the limitation on the model that I use, Carmine, the greatest limitation is me um, because I'm the human involved in this. And so because I do make the decisions and I do um, determine what I'm, I'm willing to utilize, then I become that limitation. And so, so one of the things that we have to understand about being human is that uh, we are emotionally driven. So people think they make, make decisions based on logic. We tend to make decisions based on emotion and then we superimpose logic on top of that to reinforce our emotionally driven decisions, which is, which is kind of like a, a neat process. But if you're aware of that, then that helps a lot. Um, we're also irrational, we can't see reality. And so we have to rely on modeling. So everything that we do, um, everything that we, we visualize or, or think we understand, it tends to be a model because the complexity of reality is probably too overwhelming for us to even recognize or understand. And so even like your, your vision, the, the things that we physically see is, is merely a modeled representation because it's just way too complex to take in that, that detail. Um, so as you said, all models are wrong. And, and so I understand that. And um, I would refer you to a, a, a mental model that is, that is very useful um, called, called the map is not the territory. So when we're talking about human movement, um, some of the, the models that we've used in the past are, are mere representations of what we think that we understand. So I make fun of dead guy anatomy a lot because one, well, it's, it's very, very easy, but it's also a, 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 a uh, somewhat useful representation is because there is some of that stuff that that does influence how we can perceive movement uh, to be created. But we also have to understand that, that the cadaver is not the human. So cadavers don't breathe, they don't move. They tend to be dry and, and um, not fluid based. And so again, we have to re recognize the limitations of that model. And so when the map is not the territory, um, what it means is is that is that we're using something to help us create a smaller, more manageable representation of what the reality reality is. So let's just use a silly representation. So if I had a map of the United States that was actual size, so one mile equals one mile, not only would it be incredibly difficult to fold, but um, it couldn't even be. I mean, it, we we can't even create this this representation, it would be ridiculous. So we have to use a smaller version that is not the reality, but that is representative so we can manage the complexity. So that's what, what we're talking about here. Um, as a human, there are certain things that I value, there are certain things based on my experience, and there are certain things that I'm capable of seeing uh, that, that limit what I will be able to take in. So what I see as salient or what I see as important is different from everybody else. And so last night I ran a little social experiment on Instagram and I threw up an opinion, I threw up a graphic and I threw up a, an explanation. 
And I knew as soon as I put it up there that I should expect to get some dissenting opinions. So thank you for those people that have the dissenting opinions. I truly appreciate your participation because you actually fulfilled my prophecy, which which was that I was going to get some, some blowback on that. So I knew it was going to happen because people will only take in certain bits of information. So even if they were fully informed, even if they read the entire explanation of what I was talking about, they saw it through a limited lens. And so then they reacted emotionally and they responded uh, appropriately based on those circumstances. So that was awesome to see. So I, I, I do love dissenting opinions. They're, they're valuable imp- opinions because um, even though they're incredibly wrong and misinformed and emotionally based, they are useful to help us check our own work. And so, so again, I do value that. And so then I have to take my experiences into consideration too. And so, so let's just say that you work with uh, developing athletes, young developing athletes, and then an, another guy works with high-level professionals and you're having a discussion, you're going to speak through those lenses. And so you might actually have disagreements as to what is most valuable in developing an athlete, but you're only speaking from your experience and, and you're speaking from the information that you see valuable. But this is why we see these silly arguments on social media about, about certain things. So uh, there was one on Twitter not too long ago where there were pe- people talking about return to play aspects and what you had to measure and what was important. And so you had a group of, of, of physical therapists that, that do the return to play conditioning. And then you had some strength conditioning coaches that, that, that do some of the, the, the end elements of, of that return to play. And they're speaking from their own experiences. And so of course they're gonna have disagreements as to, as to what needs to be measured and what needs to be valued. Um, if you branded yourself a manual therapist, uh, manual physical therapist, you're going to see through that lens. And so, of course, then, then your arguments are going to be based, based on that. Um, I have cognitive biases, just like everybody else does, that prevent me from accepting information. I also seek information to confirm my biases because I am human. That, that is just one of our behaviors. But again, recognizing those facts helps me sort of get over that to some degree, but I always know that that's going to exist. And and so um, that's why I, I am such a stickler about avoiding um, the singular viewpoint. So I, I challenge people to not fall into a singular system because it, it immediately becomes a limitation because everything that you do uh, when, when you adopt that singular viewpoint is I will acquire a tool that supports that or I will acquire more information that supports that and, and you become more and more limited. It doesn't mean you can't be successful because there will be points and times where that viewpoint will be very useful, but then you've immediately limited yourself in, in your scope of application. So how do we overcome these? Well, one, recognize the fact that your model is not reality. You can't see it, you're just using a representation so it can't be right. Doesn't mean it's not useful, just means it's not right. But the recognition that that you're not seeing reality um, lets you know that there is probably a better model that is closer to the truth. And so the goal then is to refine and seek out the truth and to continuously evolve your model. So don't get stuck in, in, in one place when you're, when you're developing the model. Try to avoid the emotional reaction to opposing viewpoints and, and other models. Not all opinions are valid, and, and, and I totally agree with that, but we can leverage the opposition to our advantage. So again, if I get a dissenting opinion that I don't agree with, and I, and I recognize that they're, they're just not fully informed, or they're ignorant, or they're naive, or they're just merely reacting emotionally, I can still use that to my advantage. I can still leverage that information 
to allow me to, to check my own work or, or allow me to identify it. Is there a gap in my reasoning? Is there a gap in my thinking? So I, so I do take those things into consideration, but the goal is to not react emotionally because once you do that, then you're immediately blocked from accepting any, any new information. Get comfortable with the gray areas, get comfortable with not knowing and understanding that, that the, the complexity that we deal with reduces our ability uh, to predict things. And so we're always playing off of probabilities, but our experience and time and, and influences allow us to narrow those probabilities over time, and that's how we get better. Um, I have friends that are really, really smart, really creative thinkers, and then I have, I have also friends that, that are not in the same uh, environment that, that I work in, and so I consider them my naive experts. So they're really, really smart people, and if I ask them questions, they can ask the questions that I wouldn't even think to ask, and so that becomes very, very valuable to have people like that. Um, I share information, a great deal um, because I want the opposing viewpoints. I, I don't want, I don't need yes men. I, I just need people that, that, that are good thinkers um, that have other viewpoints and other experiences because I can't know everything. I can't be involved in every environment and so I can't have the, the all the answers but other people have other answers that might be assisting me um, in, in evolving my model. Um, ultimately, what I look for when, when I'm trying to overcome these, these things is I'm looking for consistencies. So when I intervene or when I'm evolving a process or I'm asking questions, I'm looking for the consistency um, in the outcome because that's the closest thing that I can probably get to truth and, and reality. So I see the same thing coming up over and over and over again then I, I, can, I can start to reinforce that in my model to some degree. But this is, this is what science is. So this is where we do the experiment. So we experiment, we see what happens. We experiment, we see what happens. The more times you see the same thing arising. So when I see that consistency, that's, those are the things that I start to intertwine um, and, and um, contribute to the evolution of the model. Um, and then finally, what I would say is, is um, remain patient. You've got time to evolve a model. But I say patience with a sense of urgency. So, so it's kind of like the duck on the on the pond. You know, you see the duck smoothly going across the water, but underneath he's kicking like crazy. And and so always working, always trying to evolve. But understand that that you need to be patient and and let some of this evolution take place. So hopefully, that gives you a little bit of a of a of a framework as to as to how I see this this whole model perspective. Um, I, I try to recognize my limitations, knowing full well that I am the greatest limitation on the evolution of, of, of how I model this complexity um, within the, the realm that I work or the, the world in general. And, and so, again, I hope that's helpful for you, Carmine. If it's not, please ask another question. I love this question. love talking about this stuff. So um, I will stop my rambling for Friday. You guys have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.